If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. We want you to make meaningful choices that a young person could make at the time and experience history flowing around you. You can be and react to these big moments in history. Remember the history lessons we took during our school days? And for the majority of us, that just was not that engaging an experience. But what if, when we went to school, we had been able to virtually experience historical events and perhaps even interact with some of the characters around us? That's exactly what's possible right now for middle schoolers through the award-winning educational role-playing game Mission U.S., Created by New York-based educational software company Electric Fun Stuff, Mission U.S. puts students in the role of a peer between the ages of 12 and 14 during a significant era in history. Game participants make decisions based on circumstances around them and interact with other characters, changing the outcome of each individual gaming experience. And currently... Electric Fun Stuff is also bringing history to life through virtual reality with a new application entitled Mission U.S. Time Snap, geared towards high school history classes. David Langenden is founder and president of Electric Fun Stuff. David, fun is just not a word that students usually associate with learning history. How did history first become fun for you? That's a good question. I, you know, like all kids, and I think particularly like our target age middle school kids, I don't think I had a great appreciation or interest in history because often the way it was taught, you know, I think a lot of kids immediately associate history with facts, figures, names, dates, events, and sort of, you know, sort of that rote memorization. And it's only later as they get into upper levels of history that they start to sort of unpack the different perspectives and that history is really a story. You know, it's a story we tell about ourselves that influenced so many things that happen. For me, personally, I'm trying to think of a single point. I was, like a lot of kids, I had like my focuses, and I was fascinated by World War II, and I read everything in the world about it. But, you know, what I would do is I would memorize how many British fighters were shot down on a certain day during the Battle of Britain. So I was always diving deeply into it. But as I got older, I really got into biographies and reading about history and seeing how things um, just repeat in different ways. There are many sayings about that, but for me, it came a little bit later in life. How did you first get inspired to combine that storytelling you've just referenced with making not just games, but games that are going to give students agency where they can make choices through game-enhanced learning? Well, the one thing I was very passionate about (laughs) as a kid, if it wasn't history at the time, was games. And I had a very lucky opportunity in the 1980s to work for a magazine as a high school student playing and reviewing and writing tips about video games and computer games at the time for a national publication. So that sort of got me launched on the the games (laughs) thing. And I always remembered for me personally, and I've also was a role-playing game player, so I was into, you know, back then D&D and actually still play from time to time. But all that storytelling for me is sort of the entry point to so many things and compelling characters and being able to make those choices and see where they go. You know, there's a lot of games even then that try to 
bring that forward. And today you see that in many, many places, this idea of strong storytelling and that player choices and agency have impact that ripples throughout. And it really applies, you know, to the games we do. The one thing about history, of course, is that we, we take a very strong line on that history happened, right? We're not in the business of counterfactuals. You know, what we're trying to do is convey the events of the time, but you play as a young person. So you're a 13 or 14-year-old experiencing history in our games. And, you know, we want you to make meaningful choices that a young person could make at the time and experience history flowing around you. And you can be and react to these big moments in history. You can be supportive of the loyalist position of the colonists you know, leading into the 1770s, or you can be an ardent patriot. You can explore different roles for your character. In fact, we encourage players, and many do, to play through again and again and try on different perspectives and see how those choices sort of, how the game unfolds as they make those choices. In fact, when you say we and are, you're referencing Electric Fun Stuff. I have that the company has been in existence for 21 years and counting, which is exciting, and that you started your award-winning game series in 2008. Am I correct about that? Yeah, Mission U.S., you're close. I think the original, there was a competition, actually, by the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, and I won't go on to the, the, the ins and outs of that, but that was originally sort of the call for development of interactives or games around civics or history. And so that started in 2006. Really full development of the first mission started in 2008. So you're right about that. And then I think the website opened for business in 2010. And from there, please tell me what happened for you with Mission U.S., which is aimed at middle schoolers. And I've had the opportunity to play two games, which, wow, they hooked me. So they're probably hooking the kids. Yeah, so the first game we made was for Crowner Colony, and that was actually telling that story of the weeks leading up to the Boston Massacre. And the original vision of the series, and I'm almost shocked that we're sort of starting to fulfill that mission, was it was conceived of these 10 games. We are in the process now of finishing up our sixth one, Prisoner in My Homeland, which covers the Japanese-American experience during World War II and dealing with the incarceration camps. So that will be launching in a couple of weeks, and we will be starting a new mission. We're in early design phases, which is going to be looking at the civil rights movement in the 60s in Mississippi. What is the creative process like for you and your team when you come up with a new game like the one you're going to be beginning in a couple of weeks? Yeah, well, we, I mean, we are blessed with a strong team. Electric Fun Stuff is the game designer and we're the technical developer, so we are responsible for doing the lead writing and programming and visual design and all of those things that make software and storytelling. But we're also partnered with WNET Channel 13, which is one of the flagship public television stations out of New York City, and they are sort of the executive producers of the whole series and do a lot of the outreach and teacher trainings produce all the classroom instructional materials and videos and maintain the website and the infrastructure. So that's a whole huge amount of work. We also work with a team of historians out of the City University of New York, the American Social History Project. And they're pretty unique or special or awesome, <laughs> depending on how you want to look at it, because social history is a really important concept. And that's telling history through the eyes of sort of the everyday person. It's not about the great person view of history and sort of that top-down thing. It's really looking at what's happening on the ground. You know, who are all the 
everyday people in life through these events and how do all these things affect them. And so that perspective really influences what we do. But when we work with them, I will say when we started working with historians, at that point, yes, I did like history, but I didn't know how to think like a historian. And they, as historians, actually did work on a number of digital projects. You know, they worked on a lot of that, but never really worked in games. So they weren't familiar with being a game designer. And it was months, years of sort of cross-pollination and education to sort of take on each other's roles and perspectives. And I think ultimately why the series has done as well as it has is because sometimes the historians now make game design decisions I didn't think of, and sometimes, you know, my team comes up with historical perspectives or thinking that maybe they didn't, you know, think about. So there's a really a nice kind of cross-trained team that respects each other's disciplines. And I think if I had to pick, like, a secret sauce for what makes the games, you know, as strong as they are and as successful and impactful as they've been, I think it's that. What was one of the most interesting things you learned from designing the games and working with those historians that you didn't know when you first came in as a game design person? Well, I mean, there are, from the historians specifically, it's really just how to, how to approach primary sources and documents and interpret them and do real research, you know, and find, it's not just the facts, it's the different perspectives, it's learning, you know, and going to those primary sources and spending time, you know, either the written or in some of the more modern cases, we have oral histories and other media that can support and help us. And it's being able to, through that very rigorous research, to be able to find the voice of the characters that we're going to write about. So, you know, they have certainly instilled a much stronger discipline in terms of not just picking it fun and picking characters that do this, that, or the other thing, but really grounding them in you know, in real perspectives and real biographies and real sources and writings. And then in some of our, as the games have moved forward, I mean, one of the most interesting experiences I had was working on A Cheyenne Odyssey, which is the third game in this series. And we ended up choosing to tell the story of Westward Expansion through the eyes of the Northern Cheyenne tribe. And we ended up you know, reaching out and working directly with the tribe and tribal leaders, going out to Montana, spending time on the reservation, casting all Northern Cheyenne actors for all the speaking roles, and really trying to do our best to tell their history, you know, from their perspective. But it was an amazing experience just learning everything from the details of the culture to, you know, walking the land and hearing how they think about history as a much more of a living thing than I think a lot of people do to them, that they, you know, would get visibly emotional talking about events 150, 200 years ago, you know, things they obviously personally didn't live through, but that their ancestors had, and the connection, the deep connection they had to their history was, you know, sort of, I mean, (laughs) amazing, and something that I, I think is lost on a lot of people. And in fact, games like Mission U.S. are going to be restoring that. What have been some of the responses you have seen with the teachers, with the students, after they've played Mission U.S.? It's generally very, I mean, the teachers are enthusiastic because the students are engaged. And the students just play it again and again often, right? They'll play one way, then they'll play another way. And the greatest compliment I think you can get as a game designer is when someone plays your game and then plays it again. And so we're, you know, really happy to see that kind of thing happening. But what I'm happiest about 
that happens in the classroom is, you know, our games only cover, you know, one part of the curriculum, right? Even if you did all the games throughout your curriculum, you still have plenty of more space to fill and plenty of more events and stories and things to experience. But what we've seen happen in a lot of places is the games become sort of this launching point for a unit. So if you are doing the American Revolution and you start with that, that Procrater Polony mission, or if you're doing a unit on immigration and you start with City of Immigrants, which takes place in 1907 New York, you, the students are exposed to the people, the places, the perspectives, the politics, the economy, the challenges, you know, what life was like. And what they're able to do is carry that forward with them into the rest of the unit. So you can, you know, we hear stories from teachers about how kids, you know, wonder, like, what, you know, all right, now we're further into the Revolutionary War. What would Royce be doing? And Royce was a character in the game who was a little bit of a bully, but he was also an ardent patriot. And so a lot of kids find him slightly annoying, but they also, a lot of them respect him too. And But they're curious, like, what would he have done? Where, where would he be now in this history? So by creating these characters and telling these stories, we find that the students sort of bring them forward, and it helps them sort of unpack and continue to explore history. Of course, any homeschooling parent or any distance educator is going to be saying, how do I find out more about Mission U.S.? Is this free? Is there a charge? And what technology do I need? How do we answer those questions? Well, fortunately, those answers are really easy and friendly. It's free. It always has been free. As far as I know, it always will be free. A lot of the programs and games are grant-funded, and so we are able to offer them for free. It is available. Most people play through the website. It's www.mission-us.org, and it's web streaming, so through just about any browser. It's also a couple of the games are available through the iPad, not all of them. And we are facing as some people may know, a sort of a fall-off in flash technology at the end of this year. All the original games were built that way, which served us well (laughs) at the time, but we're now in the process of rebuilding many of them in a new technology, which will carry us forward. So we'll be seeing an upgrade on those, and they'll be more accessible, is what I've just heard you say. Yeah, we've actually, they will not only, actually they will be literally more I mean, accessible for a longer time, but with the new versions as we're building them, we're also taking care to do things like have text-to-speech for all unspoken text and various other sort of reading supports to help students of all levels, you know, grapple with, with that kind of text. We haven't said a word yet about what you're doing for high schoolers and with virtual reality through TimeSnap. Would you tell me about this also, please? Yes. So a few years ago, three years ago, something like that, we were scratching our heads of, you know, some of the early virtual reality technology was becoming available. The first time it really started to feel sort of viable and usable and not, you know, instantly nausea-inducing. So we started exploring what could we do? What would the Mission U.S. approach be in this new technology? And initially we thought, oh, yeah, well, we'll let people explore spaces like we do, and it'll be kind of like Mission U.S., but just, you know, in this new medium. We quickly realized that was not going to work for a number of reasons both technical and experiential. And we, after a lot of time, we've come up with this sort of new Mission U.S. experience that we call TimeSnap. So the full name is Mission U.S. colon TimeSnap. And we are just about to release it to make it available for the school year. And it is for high school students, as you said. But we reconceived what users do. You're not running around talking to people in the same way, and it's not as story-driven. 
But one thing we discovered is that in high school, a lot of students do these document-based inquiries in classes. They're reading lots of primary source documents and trying to make sense of them. And all the research, and we spend a lot of time looking at what the research tells us, is that a lot of students struggle with these concepts of contextualization, like what was going on when these documents were written and sourcing? What did, why did the author write this? What were his or her perspectives and reasons and all that kind of thing? And I think students have always struggled with this. It's hard to put yourself in the shoes of someone 300 years ago and, and make sense of what they're writing. So we felt virtual reality would do a really good job of putting you in that place. So we constructed now two different interactives. We don't call them games, actually, because... Although we tried to make them more game-like, we discovered that VR tends to work when you're trying to teach something and get across, you know, you're handling a lot of different learning objectives. There's only so much sort of um, cognitive overhead someone can have when they're in VR. It's a very intense experience visually and sound and all this. And if you're, you can't pay attention to too much at once. So we actually had to strip down a lot of the game design and keep it really focused on just being in a place and... In this case, we let you sort of, we call mind meld, listen in on people's thoughts. And we did some, we've done these experiences and we've done, we actually did some initial research. And it's considering the amount of time students use it, which is one 20, 25 minute session, we've really had some early remarkable results in their abilities to then go off and look at a new primary source document and make sense of it. What do you see in terms of those results? What are the students saying and how's their learning retention? So what we're seeing is, well, most students love the idea of like using the technology. I mean, so that, you know, students are usually always excited about, you know, the new cool thing. You know, there's a cautionary note, even of the newest VR, about 10 to 15 percent of people generally, and this sort of played out in the classroom as well, do feel that little bit of some level of discomfort and may not, you know, respond to it as well. Or they'll get through it, but they just don't, they just didn't like it. You know, they just feel a little off. But the large majority love being in it, and what they're coming away with is they sort of basically have a guided tour through moments in history and completely sort of immersed and surrounded and there's this we constructed this character called agent wells who is sort of talking to your ear and sort of guiding you like sort of a basically expert historian would and we think that as you go through look at documents listen to people and also hear how director wells is guiding you through it that that seems to be the right combination for students when they come out of it they're able to make more cohesive and well-supported arguments about analyzing a different primary source. They also are showing more retention of historical knowledge, you know, the specific facts, figures, and that sort of thing. I'm remembering just how difficult it was to memorize dates and historical facts back in school. I wish we had had this then. What have you considered has been your best lesson from creating all these incredible lessons for kids, but through gamification and through now your time snap experiences? The one thing that really I know a lot better now than I knew when I started is really thinking through the whole experience that, especially from a classroom perspective, and thinking about the teacher, thinking about the student, thinking about the classroom time, thinking about, you know, we have each of our games has you know, a playable part that, you know, a few playable parts that are 
about 20 to 25 minutes long, and we sort of time those to fit within a classroom. And you really it's, have to make design decisions that maximize every minute of that time. So I guess based on from when we started to where we are now, there is sort of that universal lesson of, you know, keep it simple, stupid. Like, you, you're trying to figure out your budget of sort of emotional investment you want for your player. Like, you have to tell backstory and about their family, but you also have to expose them to the political landscape of a time and place and really trying to find that balance and being really aware of it ahead of time and planning for it has probably been what I've at this point, after I've done a few of these, you know, taken away for it, because otherwise, ultimately, you're wasting classroom time, and that is, you know, <laughs> you know, especially if you look at where we are today and the challenges of classroom teachers now, the most precious commodity. So it's really valuing deeply that time. What's ahead with Mission U.S. Time Snap in, let's say, the next two years? What are you most looking forward to creating in your upcoming episodes? Well, what we've been trying to do so far, we've made the, the first one also parallels our first original Mission U.S. game covering the American Revolution, and the second one we are covering sort of the period leading up to the Civil War and in the Time Snap experience. We're looking at the effects of the fugitive slave law in the northern states. I think going forward will be probably the next one sort of slated is looking at sort of early New York and immigration and the sort of the progressive and labor movements of that time. And for that one, when we did sort of the immigration for the original mission, yes, we worked directly at the Tenement Museum. And I remember going in, they, they gave us great access and we took thousands of, you know, high-res photos to build 3D models of, you know, one of the tenements. And I think we did a, a nice job in the game of sort of showing that, but that's only sort of ultimately a piece of 2D art. I'm really looking forward to being able to reconstruct that environment in all its detail in VR, because I think that'll be incredibly impactful. There are a lot of people listening right now who are thinking, I'll love to see this when this comes out, including me. If people could only get one thing from you, David, about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you really like them to take away from what you're doing with Electric Fund staff and with Mission U.S.? You know, for us, our process is, you know, we just this sounds simple, but, you know, creatively, and we let the game sort of and the experience fall to us. We don't force it. We don't rush it. We don't over-design ahead of time. We find in, in the writing and the creative experience that ultimately the characters come to you if you let them, meaning, you know, explore the space, write something, see where that takes you. Don't over-prescribe it. I mean, we do have design goals, we do have structure, we do think about what we want to make, but from a pure creative process, I really like not, I guess, overthinking it at first, writing, letting, and then let the characters evolve, we record voiceover, we see what the personalities emerge, we rewrite, we rework, we keep going, and we sort of, we don't rush it. We really take our time crafting these. For anyone who's a developer or thinking about making this, there's a rule of... <laughs> Um, that I think other people have discovered, which is that the first 90% of the game takes 90% of the work, and the last 10% takes 90% of the work. So, because it's really the polish that makes it happen, and 
the first 90%, I'll be honest, I mean, I love games, but the first 90% is not <laughs> that much fun. I mean, it's just a lot of work. It's hard. There's a lot of problems. I mean, it's engaging in that way, but there's not that sort of joyful glee of like, oh, we can just do this, let's do this. You know, it's like really making it fit together. But that last 10%, and the reason it does take that 90% is you're, at that point you can really see it. You know, it's, it's still a little rough, but you can see it. And it's at that moment that you just want to invest everything you can into it because now, you know, it's hanging together. And if only you did this, and if only you did that, it would really sing. So that's, that's an exciting point to be at. David, thank you for your time today. Sure, my pleasure. You and I have been listening to David Langenden, founder and president of New York City-based educational software company, Electric Fun Stuff. As David mentioned, Electric Fun Stuff's award-winning history role-playing game series, Mission US, is free and available at mission-us.org. Once again, that website is mission-us.org. And you'll find updates on Electric Fun Stuff's new VR application for high school classes, Mission US Timesnap, on electricfunstuff.com. That's electricfunstuff.com. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks. M-A-V-E-R-I-X twomavericks.com and you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.